Welcome back to Outstanding in the Field, a podcast by Perennia highlighting production practices, pest management, and more for field crops in Nova Scotia. I'm your host, Provincial Field Crop Specialist, Caitlin Condon. We've talked about corn pests on the podcast before, but this month's episode is going to zero in on European corn borer and the impact of the Bt-resistant populations originally discovered in Nova Scotia in 2018. Dr. Jocelyn Smith from the University of Guelph Fridgetown campus has been leading the charge on monitoring and learning more about this pest in the Maritimes, Quebec, Ontario, and Manitoba. The first part of this episode is taken from a presentation by Dr. Jocelyn Smith at a field day in Sussex, New Brunswick in late August 2022. We'll dive right into it now, starting out with a description of ECB egg masses. Or even on the stalk of the plant. They sometimes get into the shank and even 
Survey every other year in Canada of how much BT corn is grown 
we're at about 90%. So 90% of the corn grown in Canada, <coughs> almost every single one of those will contain, contain traits for European corn borer. That's kind of like the face of all the genetics that's in everything, corn borer traits. And even though they're pyramided, and except there's more than one in the plant, they're everywhere. And this is exactly in the same case in the US, like they're around that 90% mark too. So, so we've put a lot of selection pressure on these corn borers over the years. Traits, right? Well, that's been good and bad. Um, there's been a bunch of studies from the US that have shown we've actually suppressed corn borer populations across the board um, so that they're almost extinct in the Midwest. And this is just one example from Minnesota. So they've been tracking since 1962 corn borer populations up uh, every year. In the really heavy corn states, it's hard to find corn borers now. Um, but in Canada, again, we're a little bit different. We are a little bit more diverse, smaller, smaller pockets of corn and things. So it's not, it's not like we cannot find them. We can still find them for sure. One thing I wanted to mention too was that throughout this whole time of BT corn use in, in the US and in Canada since the 1990s, mid-1990s, we've had to monitor for resistance in corn borer all along. That's one of the things CFIA requires when they register these new products to say they have to show that they're not getting resistance to it because um, BT is not only a transgenic product, but it's also, and we can use it as foliar insecticide in organic production too. So if we have uh, BT resistance developed as a transgenic system, that's going to impact the, the organic system as well. So we don't want it to happen. Anyway, the, both the US and Canada has been monitoring for all this 25 years and never once found a case it, that developed in the field of resistance to European corn borer, which is really good. Until, unfortunately, we got some calls in 2018 to come out and have a look at some, uh, some Herculates fields around Truro. And uh, I went there and I was like, And so we, uh, we, I visited four or five fields on that trip and you know, we gene checked the plants. Yep, they were expressing Cry1F, one of those proteins I mentioned earlier. Just a single toxin though, one on its own. Um, and anywhere from 30 to 70% of the plants in those fields had corn borers in them. And so we collected those. What we do is we bring them back to our lab in Ridgetown and we rear them and we test them against uh, the protein, the purified protein in the lab. And um, well, this is how we do it. We have these little trays with diet in there that corn borers like, and we put the protein on top, like, like a liquid. And then you put one larva in each little hole, and then you see, you know, give them seven days, that, and you get the LC50, what concentration is killing 50% of this population, right? So, you know, at a very low concentration, everything dies from these populations in Ontario, our LC50 was around 6.5, whatever, nanograms per centimeter squared of the protein. But all these collections from Nova Scotia were surviving like 200 nanograms of protein. So that's super resistant. And it wasn't just um, Truro, like I mentioned, we, we did get four, four populations around Truro, but we got one over there in Kentville from a non-BT cornfield. And um, fortunately, it fell into the same boat was also resistant. So that's kind of what prompted a lot of this new research that Jason mentioned that we're working with the Atlantic Grains Council on together. Um, Caitlin in Nova Scotia, Jason in New Brunswick, and Stephen Hamill in PEI, and, 
And um, it's been really a great collaboration because we've gotten to learn a lot about what's going on out here. And, you know, the question is, of course, why on earth did this happen in Nova Scotia, of all places, when it hasn't happened in, like, Iowa, where all the corn is, right? Um, we think one of the reasons might, might have been the fact that most of the major corn markets, they moved all these pyramids multiple traits in them, you know, 10 plus years ago. And because this is a smaller market, the genetics just weren't offered or developed for this region. And so you were kind of using some of that older, older hybrids with the, just the one trait in there. That's probably part of it. Maybe there were also just more resistant genes in the populations of corn wars out here to start with. We also don't know because, again, our, our thinking was for resistance monitoring, you would go where most of the corn is, where all the selection pressure is. So all the resistance monitoring is done in Ontario, Quebec, and in the Midwest. So we don't even have a baseline to know what was happening in here before anyway, unfortunately. Yeah, so we've learned a lot from this situation. As I mentioned, we've collaborated now with everybody in the East, and we've also uh, collaborated with some guys in Quebec and Manitoba, where, where the other corn pockets really are in the country, getting more collections of corn borers from everywhere because we think we better look at this whole thing now. <laughs> because as I mentioned, it was such a good success story all these years that everybody kind of thought, eh, we don't have to worry about corn borers so much, it's going to be fine. Since 2018 is, yes, we've got this pocket right here that are resistant to CRAD1F. We've also found one in Quebec in the last couple of years, and now we found one in Manitoba last year too. So that's not great. But, you know, uh, I think kind of a similar story with Manitoba, small corn market, short growing season, similar hybrids to what you guys were getting to. So maybe there's that story kind of lines up. But, you know, we'll never be able to say exactly why this happened. But now we just got to try to figure out what to do going forward. So we've, uh, all of those collections that we've tested so far, that's just what is listed across the bottom. We're testing them against Cry1F, of course, to see if this resistance is in other places. But we're also testing them against those other cries that I mentioned, because there are only four for European corn borer. This is it. And what we're finding is, so all these ones with the asterisk, those are all the resistant ones up there. And this is a resistance ratio. So this is kind of telling us like, how much more resistant is this population than a susceptible population? And um, we're seeing some elevated tolerance to some of the other cry one proteins, especially. So cry1A and cry1A.105. And that's not super surprising because those numbers and things, the more similar they are, probably the more it's a nomenclature system for the protein structure and the proteins are more similar. So 2AB2 still looks like the uh, the one that they're most susceptible to. Um, but this is a little bit concerning because uh, you know, yes, we're removing those single toxin hybrids from the market. The singles are all gone now, those single cryonic hybrids. But we are bringing in instead pyramids that have either cry1F plus cry1AB. So in that case, in a resistance situation, again, you're back down to that one protein, and we're seeing some tolerance happening to it already. And otherwise, you're going with cry1F, cry1AB, or 1A.105, and 2AB2. And again, you're maybe back down to one. Try 2 what is the solution going to be, right? Like it's not all doom and gloom. I'm not saying that yet. 
Um, but we're trying to figure out a lot of things about the resistance itself, and that's what Jasmine's been doing. She's figuring out the molecular basis for the, the mutations in the genes that are causing this and, and finding out a marker so we can test populations more quickly to see that it's there in them. Emily's working on um, the, the fitness costs that come along with the resistance. Are they, do they reproduce as well? Can, do they take longer to develop? Are there different characteristics for their life history that will um, be detrimental? But so far, the, the signs all point to no. They seem to be laying more eggs than being susceptibles and so on. Um, and Jenna is going to be working on more of the, like learning about the phenology, so the, the timing and stuff of these cornworm populations across Canada, because like I said, we kind of forgot about it for 25 years, this test, so now we need to figure out, okay, how many generations per year are there from different Are they using other host crops to, to act as a, a refuge or a reservoir? Um, to point out one of the weird, neat things about cornworms is that they actually will feed on 200 different plants. They are not that picky, but there are two different strains. There's, a, there's one we call the New York strain and one that's called the Iowa strain. The Iowa strain, as you might guess, seems to be the one that likes corn the most. <laughs> and so there's, and the, the uh, New York strain likes a lot of different crops like maybe wheat and maybe potatoes and apples and things like that. And there's different pheromone lures that attract those two different strains. So that's another thing Emily's been working on, is trying to determine when we get cornworms from all our collaborators out here, we're testing to see which strain are they, and we can figure out are they using other crops. Because if they're just in corn, if the resistant populations are just in corn, that might be a good thing. We might be able to wipe them out <laughs> more easily. But if they're able to use other crops to survive and so on, that's that might not help the situation. So we're still working on that. So Back to what do we do going forward. Um, one thing I also want to I want to remind you about is this whole refuge idea. I think it's going to still be really important to maintain this, you know, as much susceptibility as we can to these traits going forward. So this is kind of the the theory behind the, the refuge concept. In case you you were wondering why the heck we have to claim this refuge all the time. Um, so we, well, first of all, we talked about the high dose. We call this the high-dose refuge strategy for resistance management. That was what we did, was proposed in the beginning with corn borers in BC corn. So you have a bunch of corn borers in the field that are uh, susceptible or homozygous susceptible to the protein, right? So they're all when they feed on, on uh, the, the traded plants. You might have some that are heterozygous uh, for resistance, but if the resistance trait is recessive, then they're probably all going to die when they feed you know, there could be the odd ones out there that have, you know, two genes or homozygous resistant against the trait. So, what we want to happen, we want that to be very rare to start with, hopefully, which, as I said, it really is with European cornmore. Um, and then we want to have a lot of the susceptible insects. Yeah, so that's why we have the refuge, is to promote a population of those susceptible insects so that if there are any rare resistance genes out there, they're going to cross with the susceptibles. And then we keep everything heterozygous and most of it susceptible, keep resistance genes really diluted in the population. So that was the whole point of the refuge in the beginning. And if you remember, you used to have to plant a 20% refuge in a block or around the headland or the perimeter of the field. 
And um, it, you know, all the models showed that this is probably really a good strategy. But as we got into that world where we had multiple traits, VC traits that we could pyramid, you know, it was like, well, we've got multiple modes of action happening at the same time, so the chances of resistance are lower. So the, the refuge uh, went from 20% down to 5%, right? And then it was like, okay, but the growers don't really comply with this all that well. You know, some are like, yeah, my neighbor's got the refuge over there, of course. You know, <laughs> getting them, it's a pain to plant that refuge. So the refuge in the bag idea was where it went because that's 100% compliance, right, with growers. So that's kind of how that all came about. And it's been good and bad. It depends on the insect, unfortunately. A little bit complicated, but yeah, anyway, that's just the, the whole point of the refuge there, and we still have it, and I think if we have resistance out there, hopefully keeping, making sure we keep refuge in the system, that's going to help slow this down, right? Um, this is my last slide, and I just wanted to kind of summarize it all to say that there aren't any new corn borer traits coming anytime soon. Like, mm, I think the earliest would be eight or so from now. So, you know, we need to protect what we have. Um, as I mentioned, the single trade hybrids are gone now. We can't get them anywhere. <laughs> and um, and I'm a little leery even with that cry 1AB, cry 1F pyramid on its own because of what we've seen in, in the lab with a little bit of cry 1AB uh, uh, tolerance happening. So, you know, the more, the more of a pyramid you get, probably the better at this point. Cry1A.15, 2AB2, and Cry1F is probably what you're mostly going to find in terms of options that way, but I think that's, that's better. But, you know, like I said, respect the refuge. I know it's, it's easy with the refuge in the bag. That's really all you can do at this point, but maybe if you're not having big corn borer issues, don't use a repub BC corn for corn borer, and that also reduces collection pressure out there. Right? And if it gets bad enough, maybe we're going to have to do some stock chopping to kill some of these, these resistant populations. Um, and they said spraying is usually difficult because they get inside the plant so quickly that insecticides often don't touch them. Uh, so that's kind of where we are in terms of recommendations on that one right now. But stay tuned. Hopefully, like in a couple years, we're going to have some better ones. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's uh, the corn wars. Next up, Jocelyn joins me in the field to talk about what producers should keep in mind when selecting corn hybrids with BT traits and the potential for further resistance development in corn borer as well as other corn pests. Can you talk a little bit about uh, what producers should be asking their uh, corn seed reps about what BT proteins they should be using or what, what's available to them? Yep, definitely. I think uh, there's a couple resources too that the growers could use in addition to their reps. They might want to check out the Corn Canadian Corn Pest Coalition's website, which mm -hmm. is www.cornpest.ca. And um, there is a trait table on there, which tells all the different companies' trait packages, yes. which, which cry proteins are, are uh, produced by those plants and which pests they control. Mm -hmm. And so to try and kind of quickly summarize it, um, you know, uh, Western bean cutworm, for example, uh, we know that they are resistant to Cry1F. Mm -hmm. They were never susceptible to Cry1AB. Yep. And the other two traits that are in uh, SmartStacks products, which are Cry1A.15 and Cry2AB2. Mm -hmm. So the only 
the only uh, cry protein that protects for western bean cutworm is VIP 3A right. protein. Yeah. And that's actually the same case with corn earworm. Okay. So that's the only uh, the only BT products that will control those two pests would be something that produces the VIP protein. Right. So that kind of covers earworm and western bean cutworm. Yeah. And then in terms for, of European corn borer, yes. uh, you know, in, in almost everywhere else in North America, <laughs> they are susceptible to cry 1AB, cry yeah. 1F, Cry 1A.105 and Cry 2AB2. They mm -hmm. are not susceptible to VIP 3A, right. which is different okay. from the, the earworm and the western bean cutworm. But we now know that in Nova Scotia, we have a problem with uh, European corn borer that have developed resistance to Cry 1F. Mm -hmm. So there are no longer uh, BT hybrids available that only produce Cry 1F. Right. They're usually pyramided with another, another uh, Cry protein like Cry 1AB. But that's a little risky now when you know you have resistance to the one protein right. that's in that plant already and now you're just relying on one more. Yes. So we're increasing the selection pressure against Cry1AB, which is, is risky in the long run. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say it's going to probably be a better strategy long term to go with a something that also has the pyramid containing Cry1A.105 and Cry2AB2. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that would probably be our best bet for now. And in terms of also prolonging the life of these traits yes. in, in this area where there's starting to be a little bit of resistance, the refuge is going to be really important. So I know it's it's in the bag for most growers mm -hmm. and it's it's a, it's implemented for you. You don't have to really think about it, but think about also non-BT corn right. as a refuge that yeah. can keep susceptible populations going in some cases. Maybe if you, if you don't think you're at risk of any of those corn pests, maybe use a non-BT hybrid for for a little while. Yeah, we've kind of integrate that know, into the system. Yeah, we've kind of steered clear, I guess, of uh, the, some of the non-BT ones for yeah. quite a while, just because the BT stuff was so effective. But mm -hmm. it's not necessary all the time, right? If, if you don't That's have right. the pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we don't anticipate that the Cry1F resistance will ever go away mm -hmm. in the population, unfortunately, but. Hopefully, if we have more susceptibles out there, it would at least dilute it a little bit. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so some years we have uh, a lot more corn insect pressure than others. Mm -hmm. Is there uh, is there a good reason for that, or uh, yeah. how, is there a way to kind of predict what it, the season is going to be like? Right. It's it's we don't have any really great predicted no. predictive <laughs> models for any of them. We have degree day models, which mm -hmm. we can use to determine when their development is happening and when the flights would start or yeah. uh, of the moss, and then using your pheromone traps to to track that a bit or mm -hmm. you know confirm that that is what's happening and that, that tells you when you should scout fields for egg masses mm -hmm. so in the case of western bean cutworm. But uh, predicting year to year is really a total crapshoot with these pests that right now we don't have. Right great um, information on what what impacts their populations over right. winter and things. Um, we think western bean cutworm, it might be overwintering in this region now. It's mm -hmm. been confirmed overwinter in Ontario and Quebec, so yep. possibly they're overwintering here too, so you have some resident populations, but yeah. in addition, you probably have some migratory populations right. coming from the, the east and the south. Yeah. Um, even we do in Ontario, we think we get some from the U.S., oh, okay. so yeah. that's still all happening. So um, a good way to monitor that is through the Great Lakes and Maritimes Pest monitoring network yes <laughs> which you can find online through field crop news from omafra yep. and i'm sure you guys have a link to it too on your yep, site absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah that website tracks the flights of all of these corn pests that we're talking yep. about western bean cutworm corn earworm mm -hmm. black cutworm 
fall armyworm. Um, we're collaborating across the kind of the, you know, Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes, as well as some of our neighboring states to the south. And so, for some of those migratory populations that don't overwinter in Canada, like uh, corn earworm or fall armyworm, yeah. we can track when they're coming up the states and into our region that way. And yeah. So you can look at those, and the, the trap counts are reported on a weekly basis, mm -hmm. and then you can kind of see when things are starting to peak. Yeah, no, it's a great tool for yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. Right, so we know that uh, we have CRY1F resistance for ECB populations here in Nova Scotia, and uh, in Ontario you have multiple protein resistance for corn earworm. Yeah, and corn rootworm. And corn rootworm, yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. that's what I yeah. corn rootworm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how concerned would sh should we be about um, developing resistance to other proteins for the various corn pests? Yeah and kind of what can we do to mitigate that? Right. Yeah, our biggest issue probably in Ontario right now is corn rootworm resistance yeah. developing to all of the different uh, rootworm proteins that mm -hmm. are out there. And, you know, it's happening in only, really what drives it is continuous use, like continuous corn production and then continuous use of the same traits right. over and over for yeah. a number of years. Um, and so livestock producers are usually kind of in that boat where they're the ones need continuous corn mm -hmm. production and so it, that's where we're seeing it happen in Ontario so I would say here you know try to try not to grow continuous corn yeah. I mean, crop rotation is the easiest way to control rootworm sure. if there isn't corn planted in the field the following year that you had corn there and they were there laying their eggs then they'll die yeah. but if you put corn in there then that'll support the larvae that hatch out and they'll develop and, mm -hmm. and lay more and you know the beetles come out and lay more eggs and the cycle continues and those, those BT traits for corn rootworm are not, they've never been a silver bullet. They've never right. been like a 100% control. Yeah. So we've always had some survival happening and, and just probably using the traits for too long has, yeah. what's, has been what's driven it. So rotation is the number one, but also, you know, if you scout fields in August <laughs> um, for the beetles, like if you're gonna grow corn after corn, yeah. if you scout your field late in August and you see um, just around the ear zone, uh, an average within 100 plants of say one western corn rootworm per yep. plant or two northern corn rootworm per, per yep. plant, then you would want to probably have some way of controlling right. the next year because that's the threshold. But if it's lower than that, you can probably get away without using a BT hybrid for, uh, for another year. So you might yep. be able to use a soil insecticide. We don't have the high rate in Unix anymore, yep. um, but yeah, you might be able to extend the life of, of the traits by not using yes. them to maybe the third or fourth year right. and then rotating out of corn but we don't want to see people using those traits more than three or max right. years in a row Absolutely. yeah and we're in a good position here in Nova Scotia where we don't have the highest high populations of right. corn rootworm yet um, but also the resistance so we can we can start doing some of these things now yeah. to hopefully yes. hold it off even exactly longer. <laughs> yeah you're in a great position in that way and, and we've just been uh, our rootworm populations have always been a challenge to yeah. manage if you're growing continuous corn and then, you know, we just thought that the traits were so good, I guess they just got used a little more than we should have. Yeah. So, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Outstanding in the Field. A big thanks also goes out to Jason Wells with the New Brunswick Department of Agriculture, Aquaculture and Fisheries for putting on an excellent field day and allowing me to record some of the presentations. Subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date on future episodes and to the CropLinks newsletter for information on seasonal topics and additional resources.
Check out the show notes for a link to the Canadian Corn Pest Coalition's BT Trait Table. Follow us on social media at NS Perennia. Thank you to Perennia for supporting this podcast and our marketing and communications team for production, design, and social media. 